The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Good morning. Uh, great to be in front of you in a full house. Uh, welcome again to our guests, and uh, I trust that you'll feel uh, warmly received here at Cairn University. Welcome uh, to campus today. Uh, we have uh, actually have had a good week um, because it was a short week. We had our first snow day of the semester on Tuesday. Okay. Which I know all of you uh, got in bits and pieces. You were hoping to have it called two days before it was called, but we did call it uh, the morning of and uh, got it in bits and pieces. Our first snow day, I, I'm pretty certain there are more to come. Uh, so students, brace yourselves for that. Also, we've had a great year with regard to athletics. Um, great, uh, great competition on and off campus. And uh, the men's and women's basketball team have had a great season, and both of them will be in the playoffs next week, the women at away and the men at home on Wednesday. So congratulations to those teams. Let me encourage you students to get out there for those events. Tomorrow night, we've got a special activity on campus. Uh, there are two uh, very special pianos uh, on campus. There's an event tomorrow evening over in the Holmes Lecture Hall with those two uh, very fine instruments that we're fortunate to have. And then next week, uh, you'll get a chance to see some of your students wearing puffy shirts because the Pirates of Penzance, not next week, uh, March 1st and 2nd, uh, next, uh, March 1st and 2nd on this stage, some of your fellow students in puffy shirts playing Pirates, the Pirates of Penzance. Don't miss that. Uh, you will laugh your full heads off. Uh, so uh, you want to be here for that. Lots of activities uh, over the next several weeks for you to keep uh, in mind and to take advantage of, but also uh, we've been uh, in the habit of letting you know as students how regularly we pray for you. Uh, February is a tough month. Uh, I've been watching in my own class uh, students struggling with illness and the burden of the midpoint. Uh, spring break is just three weeks away. Uh, so think of, your, think of your term in increments. You have three weeks of spring break. You come back from that, and then it's five weeks to the end of the term. So it's going to fly fast. So let me encourage you to keep your shoulder to the wheel and take full advantage of what's here to enjoy uh, this term and the semester. And please know that the faculty and staff are praying for you. Uh, my wife and I were praying this morning for you, for, for chapel and for uh, those of you that are struggling with illness and uh, also uh, that the Lord would move our hearts uh, as we receive his word this morning, particularly on a subject that I think is very important for us to ponder. So uh, know that you're being prayed for, be encouraged by that, take advantage of the things that are planned for you uh, over the next couple of weeks. The series that I'll continue this morning, uh, this series, Think on These Things, <clears throat> I'd like to just sort of uh, unpack a little bit of what we've done. We've introduced that series in the beginning of January. We had an installment on labels and identities. What I want to talk about is think on these things. Remember, what we're talking about is maintaining or keeping a biblical perspective in a cynical and subversive age. I want to just set a little context because it's important in the subject that I want to address today, which comes from this passage in Romans 6 and we sang about together just a few moments ago. And it is this, that you and I find ourselves in a time in history when the culture around us is not just cynical, not just cynical, but subversive. There's an attempt to pull down the things that we hold to be true, to undermine them, to subvert us, to subvert our attention, to distract us, to cause us to question the things that matter most to us in this life. 
Cause us to question whether the Bible can be relied upon, whether we are right to have confidence in a creating and sustaining God, whether we're right to believe in this notion of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of his blood to cleanse us from sin, whether we're right to assume that we are to live according to God's standards outlined in his word, whether we're right to respect authority, whether we're right to revere and defer to one another, to treat one another with dignity, to not objectify one another or exploit one another. The world around us is not just cynical, it is subversive. And as Christians, what we need to do is be careful to, to keep that thinking of the age in which we live from influencing our perspective on our life, on God, and on our life as his servants in this world with one another. My charge to you and my challenge to you is that you would think on these things rightly and maintain a biblical perspective so that you would not be affected in a negative way by the thinking of the age. And what I shared a couple of times is this. We're not just talking about the day in which we live leading you to behave in a particular way. It's that the thinking of the world would affect your sensibilities. So that if the world says, hey, look, if you want something, just go get it. If someone's in your way, push them out of your way. That's the world's thinking, and it is, it is counter to the Bible's thinking. And so we have to be careful that the thinking of the age in which we live, not just that we would obey certain standards and not look a certain way or behave a certain way, but we need to be careful that the sensibilities of the age in which we live do not affect us and cause our sensibilities to be altered accordingly. The issue is that we would maintain a biblical perspective on things. And the last time that we were together, we talked about this issue of labels and identity. We live in a world that wants you to own a label, to associate yourselves in a particular way, to take on an identity. But for us as Christians, our identity is found solely in Jesus Christ. This idea that the labels that we wear, whether it's political party or regional affiliation or the brands that we associate with, those are things that do not define us as Christians. The fact that we are sinners saved by grace through the blood of Jesus Christ is the label that we should wear and the identity that we should bear. But the world wants to tell us, hey, look, you identify and wear the label that you want to. Make space for yourself in this world. When the Bible tells us we are his children and our life is to be lived for him, the sensibilities of the world want to alter our judgment. We need to be very careful to keep a biblical perspective in an age that is both cynical and subversive. It is attempting to undermine. And all you have to do is look at what is being normalized in the media around us. You look, you will see things in commercials today and in sitcoms and in movies that, that what's happening is it's attempting to say to you who have a different view of morality and life in this world, this is normal, and if you don't think this is normal, you're wrong. You and I must maintain a biblical perspective. We have to keep, we have to keep a biblical perspective and not allow what's going on around us to cause us to judge things differently. Now that's true on labels and identity, but today I want to talk about what is a very difficult subject for us in the world in which we live. It's the issue of sin, and I would put in parentheses, and grace. Because Christians should never talk about sin without talking about grace. And the truth is, if you've got a problem with sin, you probably have a problem with grace. And if you have a problem with grace, then you probably have a problem with sin. And so today what I want to do is cause us to think on these things, the issue of sin and grace. In a world that reacts to the idea of sin in a very different way than you and I do and should. The passage that was read by Dean Porcella is a powerful one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. 
Paul goes on to say just a few verses later in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought from, brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. The Christian's relationship with sin is a tricky one apart from the world around us. You and I have been saved and forgiven. If we placed our faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice as an atoning sacrifice, which as we sang, satisfies the wrath of God and justifies us before a righteous and holy God, such that we are forgiven, redeemed, and have the promise of eternal life. We hold that to be true, and yet it is also true that in this life, though our sin is forgiven, and the thing that separates us from God has been wiped clean, and we will spend eternity with him. We live in this world and struggle with the world and the flesh and the devil, and we continue to struggle with this issue of sinfulness. Our sin has been paid for, but we struggle with the issue of sinfulness. The Apostle Paul did, what did he say? The things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I keep on doing. We struggle with this. Our relationship with sin is a very complicated one as Christians because we know we are forgiven and bought, and yet here we are in this constant struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil, finding ourselves falling again and again into the same kinds of sin and sinful patterns that, that do not mark us as Christians and should not mark us as Christians. And so we struggle with things. We either become guilt-laden. How does this happen to me? I'm not no good. I'm not worthy of the salvation that I claim. Or we become sort of enslaved to it where we can't break the pattern and then sometimes what happens is we just give in and say who cares it can't be licked it can't be beaten and I'm telling you right now none of those is an appropriate biblical response to sin in the believer's life we are not to fall defeated we are not to give in and yield we are not to be laden with guilt but we're also not to believe that we can accomplish any victory over sin by our own efforts by our own will by our own power and so what I'd like to do today is to think about this in that kind of robust way because this is the reality of our life in this world. And trust me, I'm telling you, students, I know you're humans in community. And this is a Christian university where Christ and the Word are at the center of all we do. We are intentional about all of that. And yet we are a community of broken, fallible, sinful human beings, saved by grace, through faith, but human in a fallen world. And some of you in this room are struggling with this in a more profound and pronounced way than others. And this is not an easy message to deliver because I'm, I, I really do struggle with it. Some of you are legitimately struggling and want to make your lives different than they are. You're struggling with one particular thing that has you by the ankles and will not let go. And some of you have become indifferent and don't care anymore about those things, don't know how it could be beaten. Some of you aren't even thinking about it. And some of you are extremely vigilant in your spiritual life. You know how I know that? Because that's true in every church all over the world. And it's true in every college all over the world. It's true in every family all over the world. It's the reality of our condition. But we love you and we care for you. And so we want you to know what the counsel of God is regarding these things. And here's what I want you to think about on keeping this perspective in the age in which we live. The world around us may tell us that the idea of sin is oppressive, that it's too critical and judgmental, that people just struggle with things, and that's the way it is. Nobody's perfect. 
That's what the world will tell you. But is that right? And is that true? I can tell you honestly, over the course of my life as a Christian, now more than 35 years, I have heard a diminishing number of sermons on the issue of sin and additionally on the issue of grace. That is extremely disturbing to me because if we're not willing to talk about it, then we're leaving you to flounder. That somehow you think there's no winning over this or what I'm doing isn't actually sin. And the truth is, the age in which we live would say, when you say the word sin, that's a very negative thing. I mean, it's open house. What in the world's the president doing talking about sin? Is he crazy? Well, yeah, but listen, right? Here's the thing. This is what the world tells us about sin. I play this game on my phone when I'm traveling to keep my mind sharp. It's a word game. At the bottom, I get a bunch of letters in a jumble, and at the top, there are, there are slots to fill them in. There are three-letter words, four-letter words, good four-letter words, five-letter words, six-letter words, seven-letter words. They're all worth varying points. I tell you, invariably, in this game, when I have a three-word slot, and in the jumble of letters, there's a T, an E, an N, an S, and an I, I can tell you, I've been playing this game now for over a year as I travel, and I put sin in, it never comes up as the three-letter word. I had to check my dictionary and make sure it's still there, and they didn't take it out, because I'm thinking, I'm losing 35 points every time I play this game. Sin is a three-letter word. It's still out there, but, but it's not in the game. This morning, I was trying to transcribe some things on my phone, voice to text. I was saying the word sin. My diction is not that bad. I would say the word sin, it would tell me thin. I would delete it and say sin, it would say send. I said sin, it said san. San is not a word. (laughs) What's going on? Everything around us does not want to admit to this reality that sin is real. And the problem is if we don't admit that sin is real, then we never have to bow our head and bend our knee and fall before a righteous and holy God pleading for his grace and mercy. And you and I cannot afford to do that. We are his children. We have been bought with a price. Now, is sin an easy subject? No. Of course it doesn't feel good to come face to face with sin. And it feels worse to come to face come to face to face with willful sin. That's why Adam is hiding in the garden. He didn't do what he did and then say, I'm over here, God, guess what I did? He's hiding. He's hiding for a reason. He knows he has offended his creator. Brothers and sisters, if we are willfully doing things that we know offends the creator and we think it's not a big deal, our view of God is askew. He is a righteous, holy God. His wrath is satisfied at the sacrifice of Jesus. And so it's very important for us to be real about this, to be honest about this. I'm not talking about the sins. The Bible is very interesting when it talks about sin. It wasn't until I came here as a student that I realized something very interesting. In the Old Testament, because where I came from, we didn't really deal with the Old Testament much. Nobody knew what to do with it. Uh, Karen did. They made us read it a lot, right? And here's the thing. In the Old Testament, you're chopping wood, and the axe, handle, axe head flies off the handle, and somebody gets inadvertently killed. Do you know what you had to do? Run for your life to a city of refuge because you committed the sin of murder. Wait. 
It, was, it wasn't even negligent homicide. It was a faulty equipment. Instead of, instead of chasing me to a city of refuge, we should sue the axe company. In the Old Testament, sin is taken, God's standard is taken so seriously that when someone accidentally, through a faulty implement, takes a life, they have to run to the city of refuge. That's how seriously God takes a failure to meet his standards. And yet there's another kind of sin in the Old Testament that's really pernicious. It's the willful sin where, the, where someone, someone shakes their fist at God and says, I don't care. This is David with Bathsheba, isn't it? We think of this all the time. We think of David's sin with Bathsheba. Look, King David looked on Bathsheba and desired her. And then he carefully plotted to kill her husband that he could take her for his own. This was not an, oops, I didn't see that sin coming. This was an, I don't care, I'm going to do what I want kind of sin. He shook his fist at God and said, I know this is wrong, but this is what I want. And if you read the Psalms, you will see that caused David a great deal of angst and emotional turmoil. He knew what he did was wrong. My concern for us is not that we still shake our fist at God. My concern for us in this day and age is that we don't realize that we're shaking our fist at God. But we don't care that we're shaking our fist at God. And brothers and sisters, that's not what believers in Jesus do. In the book of Genesis, the Bible says this, that it describes sin as crouching at the door. Remember in the Cain and Abel account? Crouching at the door, waiting and desiring to take us and strike its evil blow. It may be necessary to not only be vigilant, but to also ask ourselves at times in the world in which we live, do we wish to be taken? Do we wish to be struck? Look, this is the reality. The reality is that too often when it comes to sinning, as followers of Jesus Christ, we just decide, you know what? I just really want that thing. And instead of our default mode being falling on our face before a righteous and holy God, say, give me grace to not want that. Give me grace to not do that. We say, he understands. It's fine. No one will know. It feels good in the moment. And I'm talking about everything from lying and cheating to gossiping to sexual immorality and sin. What's our default? Do we come to the edge of the choice that is in front of us and say to ourselves, no, 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 I need to be very careful and ask myself the hard question, this is one where I'd like sin to take me. I don't want to deny myself this. And here's the thing about the title of the series. The world around us says, don't. Don't let yourself be denied the things that you want. But for you and I, we don't get that luxury as the followers of Jesus. Our lives are to reflect the grace of God in our life and to bring him glory. I'm convinced when I think about this, and reading Romans 6 over and over again the last several days has just impressed upon me this reality that sin is a hard thing. It's a hard thing to confront and to be confronted with. Why do we think it is such a harsh thing? Well, the thing is, I think, it's not just the world around us. I see this even in our evangelical community. We don't really want to deal with this. We'd rather say, oh, I just struggle with this particular thing. You know, I just have a hard time with anger. No, if you're losing your temper and yelling at someone and calling them a name and, and venting your spleen at every turn and intentionally being hurtful with others, you can call it an issue with anger, but it's a sin. It's a sin. And until we actually deal with it and say, yes, that's what it is, but it's hard to confront it, we say, but it seems so harsh. 
I actually had uh, an unsaved friend of mine in graduate school in a conversation about sin one time said, you know, the problem with you Christians is you get sin all wrong. Jesus didn't deal with sin the way you people talk about it. And I thought, well, that's kind of an interesting thing. Somebody who knows not Jesus schooling me is to what Jesus is and does. I said, explain what you mean by that. Well, you know, Christians, you always talk about you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. Sin, sin, sin. But I always saw Jesus as very accepting. I said, really? They said, yeah. I mean, they said, and this is what they said. Look how accepting he was of the woman caught in adultery. I said, really? Can you go a little further? Yeah, he was very kind to her. Yes, he was. In fact, he ran off all the Pharisees around. And then he turned to her and said, woman, where are your accusers? But then he also said what? Go and sin no more. The loving, gracious, merciful Jesus turned and said, go and sin no more. He relieved her of the guilt and the stigma of her sin. Where are your accusers? It's a very gracious thing to do. But then in love, he turned to her and said, go and sin no more, sister. This is what Jesus wants for us. He doesn't want us to embrace this part of us. He wants us to lay it at his feet, to allow it to be crucified and put in the ground. He wants us to live victoriously. He wants us to live in his love and grace and mercy. So what do we need to do? Well, one of the things I think that happens is we think about this issue of Jesus because I think this is absolutely it. It's a hard thing to confront and be confronted with, but Jesus did it. He didn't let it pass. So much so that even with the disciples whom he dearly loved, he never let them slide. When they were involved in the sin of being overly ambitious and fighting over who would get the good seat next to Jesus, and they even, they even went so far as to sick their mom on Jesus, Jesus confronted it. When Jesus foretells his death and Peter runs in and says, oh, no, no, Lord, don't say those things. Jesus doesn't say, ah, Peter. No, Jesus says to Peter whom he loved, to Peter whom he said, on this rock I'll build my church. He turned to Peter and said, what? Get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus did not let his disciples and those who came to him slide. His message was one of grace and love and mercy and forgiveness, but it was honest about the reality of sin. He didn't let it slide, and so it's hard for us to confront it and be confronted with it, but that's what Jesus wants. He wants to lay all things open. So this is what I'd say is helpful for us. We think about this. is We need to own a proper definition of sin. We need to own the reality that we are sinners, and when we willfully sin against God, we need to own that as well. Only then, brothers and sisters, can we arrive at true confession and repentance. We have to own this. I find it very curious as Christians that we really sort of, we hear the word sin and wince or turn away. And actually, we should be the ones who embrace it because it's forgiven. God remembers them. They're as far as the east is from the west which means they're gone. East and west isn't distance, it's direction. They're, they're separated from one another. We should be turning to it and being honest about it. The reality is we want to say, well, yeah, but what about that world of flesh and the devil thing? This is not easy. It is not easy. The question is, 
have our hearts become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin such that we're in the verge of, of, of reacting to something and we just react and we just say, well, that's just who I am. No. The passage that was read said, no, no, we've been made new. This is not who, you, this may be what you're doing, but this is not who you are. You just haven't embraced the idea that you are a new creature. Now, some of you are struggling with sin. You're trying to conquer it. You, you have something in your life, whatever it is, pathological lying, Cheating, stealing, gossip, anger, malicious thoughts, envy, pornography, sexual immorality, whatever it is, and you think, it's got me, it's got a hold on me, and I cannot let go. The first thing we must do is own it. It's a struggle. We have to own it and know that we are. We acknowledge that this is not what God wants for us. I was thinking about this. I think some of us are tempted way too often to say when, we're, when we find ourselves sinning that we just don't think about it. it just, we just find ourselves in situations where we do the wrong things. Look, I'm going to tell you, in all genuine love and spiritual concern for you, that's a very thin excuse. It's thin because it means if you're saying, I'm not thinking about what I'm doing, and you're using that as an excuse, it's a thin excuse because it means you're not thinking about who we are and who you are as the bought ones of Jesus, redeemed and forgiven often enough. This is why the, 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 the writer of this letter, Paul, to this church at Rome, in a very, very secularized, very, very uh, pagan culture, he's actually warning that church, they're living in a very tough context. What does he do throughout the whole the whole book, especially the first 11 chapters, he just keeps reminding them of the gospel. Why? So that in the midst of all of the temptations that they face as citizens of that place in Rome, they would constantly be thinking about the fact that they have been bought with a price, redeemed, objects of God's love and His grace and His mercy. If we say, look, I find myself sinning because I just don't think about what I'm doing, then you're not thinking about Jesus enough. And if you're saying, well, I just find myself sinning because I don't care, then that's a whole other issue we need to talk about. But the beautiful thing about dealing with sin and sinfulness in our lives as believers, the beautiful thing about dealing with sin and sinfulness before our righteous and holy God is that He is full of grace and love and mercy and forgiveness. He says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Here's the problem, whether it's through the artifacts of the religious context around us when it comes to confession, people from traditions where you just simply observe confession, which means you just go and tell somebody what you did wrong, or we're in, we're in more communal kinds of things where we actually are telling people what we did wrong. The biblical idea behind confession isn't simply admitting to doing something wrong. God already knows that. The biblical concept of confession is agreeing with him that it was wrong. And this means, brothers and sisters, that repentance and asking forgiveness are tied to it. It's a form of spiritual breathing. When I was coming up, we talked about this. We talked about the process of confession and asking forgiveness and repenting as a form of spiritual breathing. I agree with God that this is wrong in my life. And I ask him to forgive me and give me grace that I might move in a different direction. 
It's really what we're to do. This is the thing. The more we know the Scripture and the more we know ourselves and the more we come to face with reality in this harsh world, we start to breathe that way. No, no, no. It's not simply, guess what I did? Brother, I want to tell you something because I need you to hold me accountable. I cheated on an exam today. No, no, that's fine. And hopefully you can hold one another accountable. What you really need to do is say, God, I cheated on an exam today and I acknowledge before you that that fails to meet your standard. Because I'll tell you what, it's a whole lot easier to say you did something than to agree with someone that what you did was wrong. We find this in our human relationships all the time. Do you know how easy it is to say to my wife, hey, I'm really sorry that I did that. I'm really sorry that I failed to, to empty the dishwasher for you when I knew that you were tired. It's another thing to say, you know, not emptying that for you when I knew you were tired was wrong. Do you know how hard that is? I can say the one. The other one, though, admitting you're wrong, agreeing with God that you failed, Agreeing with God that his standard is something that you have disregarded, if you disregarded or failed to meet it in your feeble attempt, that you actually come before God broken, bending your will to his and giving to him control of your life. That's what true confession is. It isn't just saying that you did something wrong. Trust me, God knows everything you've done wrong and everything you're thinking. Just think about this. Jesus said what? You've heard it said if you commit murder that thou shalt not commit murder. I tell you, if you have a malevolent or malicious thought towards another you've already committed, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I tell you, if you look on a woman in lust after you've already committed the act, the only way to deal with that is to go before God and say, this is, God, this is where I'm at before you. I struggle. My access, if, if you say to God, I, you know I struggle, Lord. I have access to things on my phone and my computer that I should not have access to, but I do, and I fail. That's different than saying to a friend, you know, I looked at something I shouldn't have looked. No, no, we go before God. I know you don't want this for me. I know this isn't what you desire for me. We agree with God and we repent and ask forgiveness. It's a form of breathing. There's no moving forward without taking that spiritual breath. And then one of the things we need to think about is maybe, just maybe, then we can come to terms with this, that we have a problem being honest about sin because we have a problem being honest about grace. You will not defeat sin by the power of your own will or self-control. You need the grace of God. It's so encouraging to me in Philippians chapter 2, there's this verse, which is a really tough one. Continue then to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That always gets me between the third and fourth rib. Work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Wasn't this a free gift from God that none should boast? But right after that he says, he says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. If I'm flat out honest with myself, there are times when I don't believe that God is at work in me or I don't want God to be at work in me. Those are the questions you have to ask yourself in the quiet moments, not just to read your Bible and to pray. Ask yourself those things. Am I being honest spiritually before the Lord about what I think and what I feel regarding my faith? Do I really want him to be at work in my life? Do I really want to give this thing over? Or has my identity been wrapped around this sin such that I really don't want to give it up? Or it feels too good to me? Or it's how people know me now? Or there's no getting clear of it? Or God wouldn't want to touch me because I've done these things? You've been washed whiter than snow. He just wants to love on you and to know you. Finally, I would encourage you, because I think this is what Paul is doing for these Christians, and we see this throughout the New Testament, that in this way, we can be instruments of God's grace in one another's lives. 
without looking the other way with regard to sin. Let me just pause. For, we do this all the time. We think that to be caring and supportive of one another, we have to look the other way. That's not Christian love. We can be instruments of God's grace in one another's lives without looking the other way regarding sin. We can spur one another on to love and good deeds. We can pray for one another as we wrestle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We can confront one another lovingly and caringly when we see sin. And we can reach out with love and grace and compassion to support one another, to remind one another to breathe spiritually, and to forgive one another when we see sin in the lives of those around us. These are to be the marks of a Christian. Don't let the sensibilities of the world lead you astray. Think on these things. Sin is real. Grace is real. Sin is powerful. Grace more so. In doing so, you will keep a biblical perspective on these things. You will not allow the cynicism and subversive nature of the age in which you live to change your thinking. We educate you to serve Christ in the church society in the world. You can't do that and be indifferent to sin. You can't do it and not care. You can't do it and not have an intimate relationship with God where you are honest before Him and resting in Him and trusting Him and clinging to Him for His grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your goodness to us, for the way You care for us, love us, provide for us. Father, we thank You for all the blessings that we enjoy in this life and we're mindful also to thank You for the struggles that we have, for the challenges that we face. For we know that these are daily reminders of our need to be dependent upon you. I pray this morning, Father, that you would impress upon us the reality of sin and your grace. That you would make us to know with great assurance all that has been done for us in and through Jesus Christ. That we would embrace our salvation. That we would recognize that we have been washed whiter than snow. That our sins are forgiven. That we stand before you as new creatures justified by faith alone. But Father, as we wrestle with world, the flesh, and the devil, as we wrestle to, to put off the old self and to embrace the new, that you would give us grace to be honest before you, that you would keep us from shaking our fist at you in willful disobedience, that you would give us the grace to be honest with you about the sin in our lives, and give us the grace to come to you asking for forgiveness, repenting of our ways. Give us the grace to desire what is true and good and noble and worthy of our pursuits. Give us the grace to want the good things. Give us the grace to turn our feet from the evil things. Father, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, move in the hearts of students who are struggling here today. For those who are indifferent, we pray that you would break their indifference. For those who are willful, we pray that you would break their indifference. For those who are wounded, we pray that you would bring salve of healing to their guilt-ridden hearts. Pray, Father, that we would all experience regardless of our view of our life before you now, your grace and love and mercy in the way that befits our situation. Make us mindful of this truth, Father, that you desire for us to be your holy people, that you love us, that you want to be known by us, and you want to know us. We thank you for this and for your Son, Jesus, who makes all of it possible. In his name we pray. Amen. God bless. Have a great day.